Welcome to Horizon. You know, it's amazing to start a service with the Bon Jovi classic, It's My Life. And the anthem of that song is really the idea of just taking ownership of the, the good, the bad, the ugly of our own lives. I remember a, a few years back that I, I began to notice in the shower that some of the grout between a few of the tiles was missing, you know, and I, I kind of kept an eye on it. You know how we say that. And I kept pushing on it every couple of months and um, eventually it got a little spongy and I thought, oh, I should really fix this. You know, like this is going on the list to do like today. And then uh, a couple months later, I pushed on it and my hand went completely through the wall. And I realized that since I didn't take ownership of fixing that problem, it just got so much worse. And that is the tale of Nehemiah 3, which we're jumping into today. We're in our, uh, our third week of our series, The 52-Day Plan. And we've been following Nehemiah, who is the uh, cupbearer to the king of Persia. So he is an important Persian official, uh, but he also has a Hebrew heritage. And we learned early on that, that he learns that the walls around Jerusalem, his ancestral hometown, have fallen and they have been crumbled for decades. And he just longs to fix them. And we learned last week that he begs his boss, the king of Persia, to give him permission and the resources to return to Jerusalem and fix the walls. Crazy enough, the king of Persia gives him permission and a whole bunch of timber and sends him to Jerusalem to fix the walls. And he, he arrives and discovers within three days that the walls are just in complete shambles. The gates are burned. Um, but Nehemiah is so passionate about fixing this problem that he rallies the people in Jerusalem to the point where they say these words from last week. They say, let us rise up and build. You know, and after 70 years of doing nothing, they're finally ready to start rebuilding the walls. And today is that day. Today is the day that the shovels are going to begin striking the ground. The stones are going to begin being stacked one upon another. And Nehemiah lists it all for us. So let's jump in here to Nehemiah's words in uh, chapter 3. Then, then Elishib, the high priest, rose up with his brethren, the priests, and built the sheep gate. They consecrated it and hung its doors. They built as far as the Tower of the Hundred and consecrated it then as far as the Tower of Hananel. Next to Elishib, the men of Jericho built. And next to them, Zakor, the son of Imri, built. Also the sons of Hassanah built the fish gate. They laid its beams and hung its doors with its bolts and bars. And I'm going to stop there, okay, because Nehemiah literally goes on for 30 more verses just listing who helped build which part of the wall. I mean, there is no color commentary. There's no rabbit trails. He literally just lists who did what. I mean, some Bible uh, commentators have literally said this is possibly the most boring chapter in the Bible. Like, aren't you glad you tuned in today? Uh, several years back, a, a scholar wrote a book on Nehemiah, and he went through chapter by chapter, and it sold uh, tons of copies. New York Times bestseller, and he completely skips chapter 3. Doesn't even reference it. If chapter 3 were getting a Rotten Tomatoes score, it would be below such Hollywood classics as Sharknado or that holiday film we all remember starring Hulk Hogan, Santa Muscles, right? It's a yearly tradition. It would be lower than that. But the thing that I've discovered 
is that the experts, they're not always right. That buried between the verses here in chapter 3, there are some pure nuggets that Nehemiah gives us for helping us rebuild our own wall. But before we jump into this episode of this old wall, do you remember last week, Chad gave us a challenge. He said, hey, in the same way that Nehemiah walked around the walls of Jerusalem and assessed their damage, um, we should do that with our lives. That we should walk around the walls of our lives and see if we begin finding a lot of rubble in, in our personal walls, our professional walls, our relational walls. And maybe like me, maybe like you, me, you were inspired and you did some walking, you did some assessing around those walls and maybe like me, you found a wall or two that really needed some repair. Well, the, the big question becomes, well, well, how do we do that? Like how do we go about rebuilding a, a wall that's in shambles. I mean, do we call in Tony Robbins and he comes in and he gives us this inspiring motivational speech and we are just pumped to rebuild a wall? Do we go the opposite direction and we get introspective and we crawl up in a corner and we really think about what we did to crumble that wall? Or maybe you're like me and you just like jumping into problems with both feet and you're like, hey, that leaky faucet in my kitchen it stands no chance against me and my sledgehammer, right? Um, I jump in without thinking all the time. Um, but before too long, what you're left with is a uh, flooded kitchen and an angry wife. And neither of those things are, are very good. So Nehemiah today, he's going to give us three strategies for rebuilding or shoring up the personal, professional, relational walls in our life. And his first strategy is this. It is to measure twice and cut once. And here's, here's what that means. I remember the summer of 1990. Um, I am uh, finishing up my freshman year of high school. I'm a pimply-faced, you know, crazy freshman boy. And I am so excited for my first summer of high school. I'm thinking of swimming and going to the parks and playing basketball, maybe a little summer romance. Um, but instead, my dad informs me uh, that we are going to hang vinyl siding on the house. Like, talk about not fun, talk about tacky, talk about everything. Um, you can imagine, I was just amazingly excited about this, right? Um, so my dad, you know, lays this all out and he says, hey, your job is going to be to measure the siding Go make some cuts and bring it back to me and I'll hang it, okay? Um, he had not thought this plan out very well uh, because I did not, let's say, have a very high priority uh, for being really precise at that point in my life. So I'm measuring, you know, I'm listening to music, doing whatever. I, you know, go back, I make a cut, bring it back to my dad. And more times than not, I discovered that the piece was still too long or uh, worse yet, too short, now it's ruined. Um, and minus a few choice cuss words, um, my dad shared that wisdom with me. He said, hey, you've got to measure twice and cut once. And when you're trying to ascertain the size of this problem, this issue in front of you, 
You've got to know it. You've got to wrap your mind around it before you go make a permanent cut. And friends, I think the same thing holds true for our own lives. That, that we really need to understand the crumbled walls maybe that we found over the last week before we jump into them. And, and here's what I mean. Um, I think a lot of us spend more time thinking about how to like get rid of the moles in our backyard or plan a family vacation um, than we really do trying to figure out how to rebuild a wall in our life, rebuild an area that's struggling. I mean, think about this pandemic. I know an- anecdotally and personally um, that mental health is struggling. There are surveys that are saying that it is just off the charts. People are struggling through this. So, so imagine you, you're struggling. You're even tough to get out of bed some days. And friends are saying, hey, you should like maybe talk to somebody. You know, but you wake up and you're like, you know what? I am just, I'm going to fix this today. I am going to Target for some shopping therapy, baby, right? Um, and I know this is sacrilegious to say this, but Target actually can't heal all of your wounds. Um, maybe, maybe, just maybe you need to measure that wall of your mental health twice because it might take more than Target can provide. Or fellas, it's a random Thursday night. You have done or said something stupid to your wife. Um, personal antidote here. Uh, and you're not quite sure why she's mad, but you could talk to her. You're like, maybe I should ask her, but it's like 10 and I'm kind of tired. So, you know what, I bet if she goes to sleep, she'll wake up in a better mood. You know, maybe, just maybe, I could get her some Starbucks. Like that'll certainly uh, smooth things over. Well, just maybe, maybe we should measure that wall of our marriage and, and see that, well, maybe Starbucks even can't solve this. Maybe we need a little help. That, friends, actual problems, real problems in our life require real, thought-out solutions. And we see this in Nehemiah, right? Like Nehemiah, when he learns that Jerusalem is in shambles, he doesn't run out of his house, jump on a donkey, and start heading to Jerusalem, right? No, here's what he does. It says, when I heard these words that I sat down and wept and mourned for many days, I was fasting and praying before the God of heaven. Nehemiah knows that that this problem is far too great to fix with an easy, convenient solution. That he puts in days of time thinking, praying, mourning, trying to wrap his mind and heart around the fact that the walls are in shambles. He knows what is true, that these walls were more complex than just building a wall. There there certainly was the wall that offered security and protection, um, but there were also ten gates. And those were wooden and iron, and they offered uh, connection and access and relationship. And and then there are the towers. The towers of the wall offered vision and the ability to see what was approaching and coming at the city. It, It was more complex than just stacking some stones. He had to put in the time to think. And our walls are no less complex. That in our lives, certainly we have the walls, the stability, security, things like our finances and our health, the bedrock things. Um, But we also have those gates, those pesky little relational gates that that can burn down so easily um, in, in relationships with our spouse or our children or our employees or friends. And the last one, the one that can be hard to see, is the towers. 
that we can have crumbled towers, that the towers can be in disarray too. And we're not able to have a great vision for the rest of our life or even next month. Uh, the disciplines of what makes us who we are, we're losing track of. And we've got to see that that tower is crumbling. It really reminds me of the words of Jesus. And he, he's going to give us some construction advice, okay? And he's going to say this. He says, for which of you intending to build a tower does not sit down first and count the cost? Whether he has enough to finish it, lest after he has laid the foundation and is not able to finish, all who begin to see it mock him, saying, this man began to build and was not able to finish. So Jesus is laying out like junior high, where you try to do something and you fail, and everybody's like, ha ha, like you didn't do it. Um, he's saying, hey, you've got to put in the time to think. And, and it's interesting, this word tower um, that he uses, the original Hebrew is the same word that's used here in Nehemiah, that Jesus was talking about a tower in a wall. And, and he was saying, you've got to create these mental resources um, to help you rebuild the wall. You've got to have resources. And we see that with Nehemiah, right? Like Nehemiah gets the resources of the king. He gets permission. He gets letters that allow him to travel through other regions. He gets timber, lumber, metals. He gets all types of resources. And we want to offer that too here at Horizon, that one of the reasons we're doing this very series during this crazy year of 2020 is to give us all some resources. In a time where many of us are probably going to be trying to rebuild some walls in our life, we're looking at the story of a man who God uses to rebuild a wall. One of those resources that's a part of this is this 52-day plan challenge that we know sometimes we all need a little nudging. We need a little bit of help to just move in the right direction. And we've created this and we're on week three of it. And basically it is just a challenge that goes along with that chapter. So there's things in there, little bite-sized pieces like, hey, listen to the talk. You know, or hey, read Nehemiah 3. You're going to learn a lot of new names. <laughs> uh, but there's also thinking exercises. There's even tangible things to do that go along with the chapter um, we have these here. You can get them at the church, but you can also download them at horizoncc.com challenge. So I would challenge you to jump into that, that it's going to take work to begin rebuilding your walls. Well, Nehemiah has measured twice. He's done all of the mental gymnastics, um, and he's pulled together the team. Let's look at his second strategy. It is to own your wall or your wall will own you. And here's what this means. Beyond the horse gate, the priests made repairs, each in front of his own house. After them, Zadok, the son of Immer, made repairs in front of his own house. That Nehemiah has a, a brilliant idea here, okay, that he is going to make people work on the part of the wall that's in front of their own home, right? Because he knows that that's going to up the level of quality. They're going to have ownership. They're going to really care. And archaeologically, we know that some of their homes were actually part of the wall. That literally their living room was the outer wall. So of course, they don't want that to be the weak part of the wall. They're going to build that really well. I mean, a genius move here on Nehemiah's part. 
Um, but in reality, the walls should have been rebuilt already, right? They've been in this condition for 70 years. And, and it makes me wonder, well, how, how did the people of Jerusalem live with these crumbled walls how did they walk out of their house every day and see that or walk out of their living room wall that was part of the wall and see that it was in crumbles and not do anything? Like how does Nehemiah, a man who's living hundreds of miles away, has never set foot in Jerusalem, care more about their walls, their living room walls in some cases, than they do? Like it blows your mind until you think of yourself, right? And I think of myself, and man, am I tempted to live with crumbled walls. And man, have I. And, and as I think about them, it, it always involves me believing a few lies. Okay, that we, there's always lies to living with crumbled walls. And the first one that I struggle with is denial. Like denial says, like, it's not that bad, right? Like there's still a wall there. Like there's stones, you know, you got to step over that wall Somebody's trying to get in here. They might stub their toe on that. Like, it's really not that bad. And, you know, besides, my, my wall's better than, like, Drew's wall, right? Like, his wall is, like, knee-high to a caterpillar, right? Like, he's got a tiny wall. My wall's so much better. And, and it plays itself out in, like, ways like, well, my marriage isn't great, but it's still better than, like, Bob and Sue's next door. I mean, they're getting a divorce. So maybe I'll just live with it because it's, it's not that bad. Or another lie that I struggle with is blame, right? It's like, it's not my fault the wall is in shambles. I mean, sure, I did back over with my car, but in my defense, it was raining, it was dark. You know, the wall actually was kind of built shoddily, come to think of it. You know, like Jerusalem kind of threw it up there. Um, maybe they should pay for it, right? And, and maybe that plays out like, well, I haven't, I haven't talked to my siblings for like 15 years, but man, that blow up at Thanksgiving, you know, like that was their fault. The wall's crumbled. Nobody's going to repair it, but it's not my fault, right? Or maybe like, man, let's blame everything on COVID, right? That's where I've run to. Or it's like, ah, oh, all this weight I've put on, oh, it's the pandemic. I mean, once in a lifetime, right? Well, no, it's the pizza. That's what it is. Um, but the, the last one, and I think perhaps what the Hebrews are most struggling with is the lie of despair. That they, they were looking at the wall's and despair says it's, it's never going to change. It's never going to change. So why do anything about it anyway? That when we, we study the history, we know that the Babylonians had come through a hundred years before and decimated Jerusalem. They destroyed the crown jewel, the beautiful first temple, which was luxurious and elegant they destroyed it and then they tore down all the walls and then they dispersed the Hebrew people throughout the kingdom to really keep them from being powerful. And we know that 30 years in that the Persian Empire took over the Babylonians and they allowed the uh, Hebrews to begin returning to Jerusalem and they return and they, they rebuild a meager second temple that is like a JV temple compared to the first one and they don't even touch the walls. They just leave them. And I think what's happening here is that 
as they look at those walls and they're reminded that they have just been conquered and conquered and conquered all of their history, that they start to feel like it's never going to change. What's the use? Like why rebuild when it's just going to get torn down again? And because they don't own those walls, those walls begin to own them. And that same despair and defeated nature becomes their identity. So in a very real way, Nehemiah here is helping them rebuild not only a wall, but their very selves. So what do we do? What do we do when we look at the wall and we, we're not happy and we, we fight off the, the lies of denial? We fight off the lies of blame? We, we try to get over despair? Well, I think it begins with owning it, that we have to own that, hey, yeah, that wall's not great. And I have something to do with it, right? Like some of it's been handed to me maybe through circumstance or life, but some of it's my own doing. I've really got to own it. We all know and love Samuel L. Jackson, right? Uh, He's been in such hits as uh, Pulp Fiction and such um, terrible movies as Snakes on a Plane. And and he is always, always the guy that talks really loud, right? Like he just, he takes over a movie, Um, And I don't know if you know this, but he didn't make it big until the age of 46. That at the age of 46, he stars in Pulp Fiction, um, and we all come to know him. Well, as you hear him speak and he shares his story, um, he grew up in poverty. At the age of 15, he becomes addicted to all kinds of stuff. LSD, heroin, marijuana, any kind of drug you can imagine he said he was addicted to. He gets trained to be an actor and he moves to New York and he, he's a struggling stage actor. He gets some bit parts and off-Broadways, gets to work in a commercial here or there, maybe, you know, man number three in a B movie or something. Um, and he shared that he never took the stage or movie set in his 20s or 30s without being just high on something. That quite literally, he just lived with that crumbled wall for 15 to 18 years. He gets married. He has a small daughter. And he said that in 1981, he remembers he, he woke up on the floor of his kitchen and he's surrounded by drug paraphernalia from the night before. And he looks up and he sees the, the batting and beautiful eyes of his little daughter who has found him. And he said, that was the moment where I knew I had a problem, Right? And you're thinking, how did he not know he had a problem? The walls were there for 15, 18 years. But he finally owned it. And he goes to rehab and then his career takes off like a comet. And he becomes the movie star that we all know today. You see, Samuel L. Jackson knew not only that he had to own his wall... But he also knew he needed help. And our third strategy from Nehemiah is this. It's to team lift. Team lift only. Have you ever gotten a big piece of furniture? You know, and it's got that sticker on it. And I'm a knucklehead, so I go ahead and grab it and try to move it anyway. Um, but Nehemiah knows this. He knows that if he showed up and tried to rebuild the wall, just him and a buddy, it would take 52 years, not 52 days. And here's what I mean. Nehemiah 3, 7 through 8, it says, And next to them, Melatiah the Gibeonite, Jaden the Maranathite, 
These are hard names to pronounce, folks. The men of Gibeon and Mitzpah repaired the residence of the governor of the region beyond the river. Next to him, Uziel, the son of Hariah, one of the goldsmiths, made repairs. And also next to him, Hananiah, one of the perfumers, made repairs. And they fortified Jerusalem as far as the broad wall. Nehemiah is an amazingly smart guy. He breaks this project down into 40 individual projects. And then as you read through Nehemiah 3, there are 35 unique groupings of people that work on the project. There's a dad and his daughters. There's the perfumers. There's the goldsmiths. There's priests. There's men from Jericho. There's city officials. They all pull together to work on this. It's, it's quite amazing. I mean, imagine getting that many people to agree about a wall, right? <laughs> yeah, sorry, I move on from that. Um, but there's such power in working together. And we really believe that here at Horizon. We believe that the collective can always accomplish more than the individual. That there is a, a power in working together um, that just multiplies in a greater way. And one of the things that we're doing right now um, we do a lot this time of year especially, but one of the things we're doing are we're continuing to collect food for IPM. So IPM, they're the blue bags in the atrium. Um, it's an amazing organization. It was founded in the 60s. Um, some local churches pulled together and they said, hey, what can we do best to serve the families in Cincinnati that need food and need clothes and need household cleaners and just need stuff that when families like that walk into our church, we don't always have that on hand to give out. So let's work together, right? Are you catching that? That they sat next to another church, they pulled together. Um, and, and I talked to Leslie. So Leslie Willett is one of our uh, Horizonites, if you will. And um, she works for IPM. And uh, she was sharing with me just that over this pandemic, um, that they are now serving three times as many families as they were this time last year. That since March, 14,000 families have reached out to IPM for help. And their locations, again, are Newtown and Amelia. Um, And Leslie did share, and and I encourage you to grab a bag in the atrium, but she shared that they need things like jelly and mac and cheese and spaghetti sauce and spaghetti noodles. Sometimes they'll get like huge shipments of things from Kroger or somebody, and they've, they've got a lot of other things, but those are the things they really need. So I would encourage you to grab a bag. And I think if we all collectively at Horizon pull together, um, we can really just overflow their shelves. And the Bible is not silent on this. The Bible says that two are better than one because they have a good reward for their labor. For if they fall, one will lift up his companion. But woe to him who is alone when he falls. That God is is saying, hey, you're stronger together. And friends, as we think about our walls, know this, that one of the great tenements of the Christian faith is community. That we were not created to be these lone islands out in the middle of the ocean. That we were created to live together and work together as an organism. And in fact, the Bible never says, when we're encountering a crumbled wall, it never says, hey, you've got to reach down inside and just pull out this second wind of inner strength and fortitude and just willpower that wall. Oh no, it says quite the opposite. It says that you've got to reach up 
and humbly grab the hand of your father who wants to help you rebuild the wall. And we see that with Nehemiah, don't we? We see him reaching up to God over and over again saying, help me. Help me out here. And the Bible also says it's not about reaching in and pulling out the strength. It's about reaching out and grabbing the hand of your friend, your spouse, a counselor, your neighbor to to grab and grab a shovel and start helping you dig and stack rocks. It's interesting when we look at Nehemiah that he assesses the walls in the cover of darkness, virtually alone. I think he takes a man or two with him, probably just for protection, but he, he rides his little donkey around the walls under the cover of darkness, and he really tries to understand the problem. And, and I think that's great, just great wisdom for us, that we can assess our, our walls alone. We can think through the condition of them in our own mind, our own heart, in the darkness of our own um, thoughts, But Nehemiah rebuilds the wall under the warm glow of the sun with the help of his friends and neighbors. That we can begin the process of rebuilding the walls in the dark alone, but man, completing them, bringing it to fruition has to happen in the light with the help of other people. That we've got to go from darkness to light. I wonder... How many walls right now are you still trying to rebuild all alone? You're you're literally just stacking rocks. You're, You're shoveling. Walls continue to fall down around you. And you're still all alone. Like, aren't you, aren't you tired? Doesn't it get lonely? Well, friends, the, the great news of this story, Nehemiah, is that it's not just a story about a man who leaves a high-powered job to go help some people or a man who leaves a kingdom to go save some people. Um, that Nehemiah is just a, a taste, a bit, a foreshadowing of the ultimate Nehemiah in Jesus. That Jesus leaves behind a throne room to make a long journey to come help some people that have just been living with their broken walls. That's quite literally the reason he came. One of the amazing things that we'll finish with here in chapter 3 is that the first verse, Nehemiah 3.1, talks about them building the sheep gate. And then the last verse, Nehemiah 3.32, talks about them building the sheep gate. And obviously they build in a circle or whatever, oval around the city, and it begins with the sheep gate and ends with the sheep gate. And here's why. That the sheep gate was where the animals would come in to the temple to be sacrificed, basically to atone for the mistakes of the people. And they would have to do this pretty often, right? Definitely annually, but if you made a mistake, you would take your sheep through the gates and and it would pay the price for your mistakes. When an animal went in, it never came back out. Well, some 400 plus years later, Jesus walks these same streets of Jerusalem, We're told in the Gospels that he walks through that same sheep gate quite often to enter Jerusalem. But then amazingly, after Jesus is captured, he's put through this kangaroo court, he is unjustly sentenced to die, and they beat him, and they hand him a big, huge piece of lumber, and they force him to drag it through the streets of Jerusalem. He's falling. He has to have somebody help him, and eventually... 
Guess which gate that Jesus leaves Jerusalem out of? You guessed it, the sheep gate. That, that for once, the sacrifice is going out of the gate. And instead of having to be sacrificed over and over and over again, it's the last time. This is the final sacrifice, the ultimate sacrifice, the ultimate sheep laying down its life for us. So that is the story of Nehemiah. So I encourage you, as you think about these walls in your life, it can be tempting to want to just keep going through the motions, right? Going through the motions of life, you know they're there. But I encourage you to stop, hit the pause button, and reach up for the hand of the ultimate Nehemiah, the hand of the real wall builder, because he's waiting. He wants to help us rebuild our walls. Have a great week.